Welcome to the Silky Smooth Sounds of the Green and Red Podcast. I'm your co-host, Scott Parkin in Berkeley, California. And as always, I'm joined by Bob Bazanko in Ohio. And as always, we thank you for watching and listening and ask that you share and subscribe and rate and review and all that good stuff. Uh, really excited about today's show. Um, it's not going to be kind of hard-hitting political analysis and historical revisionism we usually do. Today, we're going to talk about cultural politics. Uh, on May 24th, 91, 81 years ago, Robert Zimmerman was born in Hibbing, Minnesota. And barely 20 years later, he would become known to the world as Bob Dylan, and arguably the most uh, socially important musician, maybe in any you know, level of American history, but certainly in the later 20th century. His story is pretty well known. He went to Greenwich Village. He went to New York. He met his idol, Woody Guthrie, and he began writing the most amazing songs, you know, that the country had ever heard. It just changed music in ways, you know, took on kind of the folk music, the politically conscious folk music, adapted it to rock, and then put lyrics in there that are just simply amazing. He's won both a Pulitzer and a Nobel Prize. So Scott and I are going to talk about that, but what we're really excited about is our guest today. Uh, it's somebody we know well and we've had on before, Michael Stewart Foley. Mike is one of the eminent historians, the eminent scholars of music and politics anywhere in the world. Um, we had him on recently because of his book, which has done really, really well, uh, Citizen Cash, The Political Life of Johnny Cash, which has been written up and he's been on media all over the world. Uh, he's also written a book about the dead Kennedys, Fresh Fruit for Rotting Vegetables. Uh, in his earlier life, when we met, he was a great scholar of the Vietnam War, wrote Confronting the War Machine, about draft resistance, and was also a consultant for the documentary, The Boys Who Said No, uh, wrote a book on activism after Vietnam called Front Porch Politics, and has edited a collection uh, of letters to Dr. Spock uh, about his political activism, Dear Dr. Spock, and he's done a lot of other things too. Professor at the Université Grenoble des Alpes, I'm sure that was pronounced really badly, but Michael Stewart Foley, Mike, thanks for coming on. Thanks um, for having me. And, and since you, uh, we, we defer to you and your knowledge of music and politics, um, I just wanted to start uh, kind of on a, on a more personal note, like how you first kind of got into Dylan or heard Dylan and what you think the meaning of it. There's so many, I was unpacking books in my garage and I have a whole box just of Bob Dylan books, you know? Yeah. Everyone is named after like a title or a line from a song. And then the subtitle is some version of the meaning of Bob Dylan. So. <laughs> right. Right. I, well, you know, like a lot of people, I mean, I was born in 1964. So, and I had older brothers and sisters. So that's almost, I don't remember it, but I'm sure that's almost certainly how I first heard Bob Dylan was on the turntable of, you know, one of my brothers or my sister. And it was clear that, you know, among my siblings who you know were ranged from three to seven years older than i that he held obviously a special place in the in the pantheon of their favorite artists you know um so of course by the time i was old enough to start buying records myself i started to you know rebuy like the records that my brothers and sisters had and i bought some of the early dylan stuff especially um because that 
I guess was what resonated with me most, but I didn't, I don't think I really thought seriously about him as a political artist until later, you know, and, and for sure, you know, well before I was in graduate school, but when I was in graduate school, working on the Vietnam War, you know, it was impossible not to immerse yourself in all the music of that period while you're doing the research on it. And, you know, so Masters of War, obviously, for which you wrote, you know, took the title for your own book. Um, And with God on our side and hard rain is going to fall and all these, these are like, you know, that's the soundtrack of the Vietnam War. But I think what's most interesting to me about Dylan is the way that he, you know, has always kind of denied his, his identity as a political artist, right? Even though so many people first received him and understood him and thought of him as the, this essential political artist, you know? So that's part of what makes him fascinating, you know? And Johnny Cash was similar in that way that he didn't go around bragging that he was a political artist. You know, he wasn't marching in marches and things like that. I mean, even Dylan went to the March on Washington, but, uh, but then Dylan kind of, you know, denies his, his early identity, you know, by the mid sixties. And that's, and, and is stuck to that line ever since, you know. There's that great line, I think it's in Don't Look Back, when a reporter says, what are your songs about? He says, some are about four minutes, some are about 11 minutes. So. <laughs> right. God, how did you um, get into Dylan and what's he meant, especially in your line of work? Because I think kind of culture and sing-alongs, we talked about that when John Prine died, how important that was to kind of your, your just your daily life. Yeah, I mean, I think I got, I probably, I got into Dylan high school, college age, definitely by the time I was in college, I was in this like scene of like with hippie anarchists and people who were political. And this was like the you know, late eighties, early nineties. And, and we, we listened to a lot of like what I would like call now like classic rock. And so like Bob Dylan kind of like fit into that. But then when you would listen to Dylan stuff, especially the earlier stuff from the, from the early you know, times there are changing and blown in the wind and things like that, it was like way more overtly political than just about anything else I was listening to. And it was like now in, realize that during the during the time and during that time in my life that there was a lot of like really overt music which I'm much more into now like from the punk scene and like different kinds of folk and stuff like that but that was like for me that was an entree into that into both politics and into political music I don't know I I also really appreciate just some of Bob Dylan's like kind of more personal music I often say that Blow and Tracks is my all-time favorite album Shelter from the Storm Tangled Up in Blue are some of my favorite songs which you know is not political but you know, he, he, just, he has just meant a lot to me and it's something I've like sort of carried through my life. And then when I do political work and have hard times, like Dylan is amongst the, you know, top of the top of the artists, my top five, which I listen to when I need a little bit of uh, um, I, where I need a little bit of escape or I need a little bit of a, a re, sort of revitalization or rejuvenation. So. Yeah, I kind of like Mike came to him a little later. I was in college and a friend of mine from the University of Cincinnati called I said, I have tickets to a Dylan show here. I said, oh, of course. So I grabbed my frat brother, actually, and we, we had it out. And, you know, I was familiar with his greatest hits kind of stuff. But and I was kind of cautious that night because who knew what kind of Dylan you were going to get? We can talk about that later. Right. Was he going to do Christian music? Was he going to rant and rave? But he played kind of the classics. And I came back and just went out and I bought everything on vinyl, on cassette, on, on CD. Uh, and I was just hooked. And then, you know, like like you, when I was writing my dissertation, especially and like Bob Dylan and Neil Young should be co-authors because I just kept playing them nonstop. You know, I had like eight or 10 CDs out there that I just played nonstop almost 24 seven. And then like Scott, the personal stuff, I remember, you know, the first like major heartbreak I had, I listened to blood on the track so much. I, I like wore out the vinyl and I had to 
to go buy another one. So yeah, it's, it's just this transcendent meaning and, you know, he's still doing it, you know, 60, almost 60 years later, you know, a few years ago, I saw an interview with, I think it was Elvis Costello. It might've been Leonard Cohen. It doesn't matter. I think it was Costello. And somebody said like Bob Dylan's new album only has two great songs on it. And Elvis Costello said, for most of us, that's a career for Dylan. That's a mediocre album, you know? So he just you know, has this incredible meaning. I think, you know, Scott mentioned a couple of songs, which I think were his breakthrough, uh, blown in the wind times are a change and like a rolling stone. What did those do? Why? And maybe Mike, you know, because you, you, you do this more than, than we do, but what did, why do you think those resonated so much? You know, you'd had folk music, you'd had the great Woody Guthrie, of course, but these were, to me, at least, they were like poetry as well as, you know, kind of politics. Yeah, I mean, I think it's both of those things. And it's, and it's you know, kind of catching lightning in a bottle at the right moment, you know, in American history. You know, he, he obviously is peerless as a writer, you know, and, and draws upon these traditions, you know, like Woody Guthrie, obviously, but even even going further back, you know, he's he's drawing on a kind of lyrical, um, poetic tradition that's deeply American and that, you know, um, seems almost timeless. And then at the same time, he, he's writing these songs, those songs in particular, you know, the times they are changing and blowing in the wind that are speaking very specifically to his generation in that historical moment, which, you know, is tense. Uh, because it's in the middle of the Cold War and it's in the middle of the civil rights movement and it's in the middle of a lot of upheaval, including generational upheaval. And, you know, that's bound to resonate with lots of people and the technology is helping him too, right? Because the technology and the changing in the, of the music industry is helping him too. The fact that like Columbia Records sees talent in a guy like this where they wouldn't have 10 years earlier, right? He would have been kind of marginalized on Folkways Records or something like that. Um all that's important in the in the kind of convergence of forces that make him dominant uh, at the time. Yeah, no, I, I think what gets me about those is the way they just kind of talk about this, this tumult, this turmoil that's going on, right? And, right. you know, you just the kind of a metaphor of blowing in the wind, you know, what's happening, there's something floating around here, uh, you know, and obviously the times are changing is very overt. And, and uh, you know, like a rolling stone, you have this sense of kind of upheaval and things like I shall be released, chimes of freedom. So, you know, if, you know, when I teach, I, I'll play some of this along with, you know, the Port Huron statement or talking about SNCC or, you know, we'll talk about civil rights in a minute. You know, when I talk about, you know, Dylan would go down, went down to the South and often sang with the SNCC choir. Right. right, right. And I think, you know, Dylan's always like you, you pointed, you both pointed out, like Dylan's always been really squirrely about his politics. You have the famous episode when he gets the Tom Paine uh, award for, you know, free expression. I forget what exactly it was not long after right. Kennedy died and he shows up, he's probably drunk and he's just kind of foolish and gets booed in a lot of ways. And, you know, talks about you guys are a bunch of old white people and blah, blah, blah. And he mentions civil rights in Cuba and things like that. But I think, I, I, and, and it's always seemed to me, if there's one part about him that was genuine, it was African-Americans and, and civil rights. Yeah. And I think that kind of it, some of the most potent, political music uh he ever made just I, the first time i heard hattie carroll the lonesome about how i just cried you know yeah and that's stunning i mean what do you what do you think of dylan's like it, it, you know do you think that's genuine and scott mike or and and what songs kind of resonate oh and by the way for people listening or watching i'm not sure about the copyright issues here because we've had problems before so what we're going to do is put links to all of these songs in the show notes so just if you want to listen to them 
rather than play them here because I don't know they may not let us publish it if, if we do so but uh, just kind of civil rights african-american music um you know he wrote songs about emmett till he wrote songs about george jackson you know just what do you what do you think of that or what you know what do you think that resonated do you think it's important and that's another thing i, I wanted to say in the intro and i forgot we we tend to kind of elevate cultural icons and musicians to give them great importance or great blame however you want to look at it you know remember george bush went after the dixie chicks for instance and you know you talked to us uh, about johnny cash and especially johnny cash's experience at, at the nixon white house and I've often kind of in my own mind, you know, debated this, like, do that doesn't matter and how much does it matter? And I think if anything ever mattered, like Woody Guthrie and Dylan probably came the closest. But do you think do you think that was just one small piece of that entire period? Or do you think it was kind of more important than that? I mean, I you know, it's hard to say. I think obviously the civil rights movement achieved the successes it achieved thanks to the courage and heroism of, you know, thousands of people on the ground, you know, and, and, and we now know, you know, had been working in a tradition that had been going on for decades. We just, we didn't learn about that in school because we only learned about what happened after Brown versus board of education or whatever, but the, you know, all these people, Southerners, you know, black and white who were working for civil rights for decades before that made all this possible. But I, I do think, you know, that, that, uh, artists, and particularly musical artists, you know, have a special place in the larger political culture, you know, and that when they do it right, you know, uh, when they do it in a way that isn't kind of ramming something ideological down someone's throat, right, but that speaks to, like in the, in the case of the lonesome death of Hattie Carroll, you know, just is effectively recounting a story that most of the public didn't know a true story, right? In poetry and in, you know, powerful verse um, that effectively conveys his Dylan's outrage, but doesn't really like impose it on people, right? He's not like saying, he's not like hitting you over the head saying you have to believe what I believe, but I'm going to tell you the story of this thing that happened, right? And then it's up to you as a citizen to respond, to think about it, reflect upon it, right? As he had done, you know, and only the artists who are, who have this kind of great skill obviously can, can speak to a particular issue or even like a very specific episode like that with that kind of skill, but it has the capacity to obviously reach millions of people, right? To reach far more people than, than, you know, the first newspaper report, which was buried somewhere uh, in a newspaper in Maryland, you know, and probably at the Washington Post, if it reported on it, you know, had it buried. And so I think artists like that have, they really do have an ability to reach many, many more people. And particularly because it coincides with this, with the baby boom coming or baby boomers coming of age and becoming politicized and challenging their elders, you know, a song like that had powerful effect i think and i you know to me not to keep dragging on but uh, droning on but uh the last thing i'll say is i i agree with you about 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 dylan and race that, that he's he's so consistent and so prolific on the question right i don't it's impossible to accept his arguments that he's not really political and the fact that he still does george jackson and then hurricane right like many years later right and these are these are equally as heartfelt and equally as potent and also have have a larger capacity to reach a wider audience because by then he his fame you know was so much greater and 
I just don't accept that he's not a political artist and that he's not a civil rights artist. I just, you know, he can say all what he wants, but he, the record is clear. I agree. What, what, one thing I'll say to tag on to what you said, Mike, is I actually think what was important about political music at that time is like they didn't have the internet. It's not like they were, like we were seeing protests on Twitter or whatever. It was like, if they were lucky, it was captured in the media. But then, and, and part of the civil rights movement strategy was they wanted to move white middle-class America that wasn't in the Southern states, that wasn't opposed to desegregation. There's a whole bunch of factors that went into that, like pictures of civil rights activists getting beaten up on, on television was like one piece of that. But then also, you know, this sort of cultural piece, this pop culture piece where artists like Bob Dylan, you know, singing overt songs about the civil rights movement, I think was like a, a big factor in moving those moving people along like a, a pie line of sorts where they're going from I'm neutral on that to where like I support those activists down there. And I think, I think right. Dylan, the influence of people like Dylan actually was really important in that moment, music, popular music, whether it was at coffee houses in Greenwich village or on like, you know, vinyl being sold around the country. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, the, the Hattie Carroll, what got me was, you know, like you said, like nobody really heard about that, but when you, you read, you saw that story and you said, I'm going to write a, a long song about this, which is just, just the idea that you could turn this into this horrible tragedy into a song was, was really quite remarkable. Now, what you said about the internet reminded me that I've talked to many hundreds, maybe thousands of, of Vietnam veterans, and Mike, you may have too. And a lot of them, like a really big number of them have said that when they were, especially if they were actually serving in Vietnam, music was so important to them because it was something common. You could be from LA, you could be from New York, you could be from some small town in Iowa. And there was something you could talk about. You could talk about the Beatles, you could talk about uh, Jimi Hendrix, you could talk about Bob Dylan. And so that was, you know, in Vietnam, that was really important. I remember guys saying, yeah, we put on the Dylan's newest album as soon as it came out and, and you know, you know, which kind of meant something to them. <clears throat> but getting back to civil rights, because I think, I mean, I, I, you know, Dylan's never been like a commercial you know, uh, I don't know if he's ever had a number one album. Has he? Was Blood on the Tracks? Maybe, but maybe I don't know. I don't know. But you know, I, so he, Highway sixty one. I don't know. I mean, I, you know, he was obviously very popular and did quite well for himself. He just sold his archives for what four hundred million dollars or something like that. Yeah, but it wasn't like you know the Beatles or even like the Monkees really. Uh, but <clears throat> so he did a lot of songs that like you know obviously people who were clued in and tuned in knew. But you know things like Oxford Town, which is really incredible, which he wrote. Um, Oh my God, I've forgotten the name. James Meredith. James, James Meredith. Meredith, right. But to me, the one that always got me, which I thought, you know, was just this perfect blend of music and, and ideas was only a pawn in their game, right. which debuted at the March on Washington. And I know I've talked to both of you, I think about this, but what, like Scott, what do you think of, like, what do you think of that one? Because I, I think just that idea of, like you said, he didn't ram it down his throat to say, you're a bunch of racist KKK bastards who killed Meg Grevers. I, I think what's important about some of, some of the music, actually Oxford Town is one that's coming to mind with, with your question you're asking is like, it wasn't necessarily like these are a bunch of like racist assholes. It was a description of what it was and then let people decide on their own. And I think that's actually kind of an important piece of what he did. Like the more politically overt artists like Phil Oaks or someone like that is like, they're, they're like way more like blunt on, on, on these right. topics. But Dylan is more subtle. Let people decide what they want to do. And then, you know, hopefully they'll make the right decision. Right. And he, and he writes from the perspective of, of relating to people, you know, even in only a pawn in their game, right? There, there, it's it's a peculiar because he didn't. He could have taken the perspective of the Evers family, right, or the perspective of you know black Southerners or something. And instead, it's this really complex unpacking of racial hierarchy 
and class hierarchy in the deep south at the time um and and it's done in a way where he's obviously he's not he's not excusing the murderous behavior of the pawn in the game right but he's explaining like how that guy got to be that guy uh and that's a pretty daring move in fact at the time um and and daring in light of the other songs that he'd written in favor of civil rights you know the first time i heard it, i was blown away i know you know in grad school later i would read like theodore allen and and um edmund morgan but dylan was singing that 15 years prior to that you know the south politician it's, it's kind of this poor white guy right South yeah. politician preaches to the poor white man you got more than the blacks don't complain you're better than him you were born with white skin they explain and you're all just pawns for this it's really about class right about these these right. rich are taking advantage of all of you they're having you fight this race war so you don't turn your attention toward them. I just, you know, was amazed. The, the Shocking first... how that still works today. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. Well, and then, you know, I think when you think of like Fortunate Son, right, you know, years later, it's kind of the same idea. And, um, right. you know, you mentioned Phil Oaks, which is something I want to talk about because I'm a huge Phil Oaks fan. And he and Dylan had kind of a, I don't know if Dylan, what Dylan thought or if he thought about Phil Oaks, but Phil Oaks clearly looked at idolized Dylan. And I think, you know, really was disappointed with him at times when Dylan proclaimed that he wasn't being political. Also, I know, uh, I remember the guy, Billy Bragg once said that uh, um, for every, there were, what was it? There were 10 Bob Dylans to a penny, but there was only one Phil Oaks. So that's, that's kind of, <laughs> right. you know, they were, I mean, Dylan, and that's another part of it, right? Dylan didn't just do this. He like inspired, like, pretty much any interview you hear with anybody is going to Jackson Brown, a few years ago was talking about, Oh yeah. It's like, Oh, so it's all Bob Dylan. And pretty much, you know, the Rolling Stones named their band after a Bob Dylan song. And, you know, at the, in those early years, I think he was very closely associated with, with Joan Baez, of course, and Allen Ginsberg, but also Johnny Cash. And um, what was that? That's kind of, I mean, the first time I saw them together, it seemed like an odd pairing, but in fact, it wasn't at all. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, Dylan was a Cash fan. He said he said many times uh, that he you know he was listening to Cash um, back in Minnesota uh, as he was growing up, and I think they both kind of come from a similar, not from similar backgrounds exactly, but from similar kind of perspectives in terms of their understanding of American music. You know, they're both they both have tremendous admiration and respect for these older traditions of the blues and folk. And I think, you know, Dylan said that he saw it. And when, when Cash died, he called Cash, you know, the North Star, that, that he was his North Star, that, you know, you couldn't go wrong uh, by following him. And that I think the, it's clear that they related to one another, you know, in a similar fashion, because Cash was really into this kind of social realism, like I talked to you about the last time, and he was obsessed with those Lomax recordings and obsessed with writing songs and concept albums that were kind of similar to that or tried to capture something similar about American life. And clearly that's what Dylan's doing too when he's writing about Hattie Carroll or Oxford Town, right? He's, he's writing not only in a kind of Woody Guthrie tradition, but in a, in a Lomaxian kind of tradition. You know, these are, these are songs that, you know, Lead Belly could have come along and written, you know, and uh, so I think there was tremendous mutual respect. And at the time that you know they performed together on Cash, the first episode of Cash's television show, that happened to coincide with Dylan's I don't know deepening fascination with Nashville and with country music, and you know wanting to move there and and make that 
that kind of music, you know. So they were they formed a kind of mutual admiration society by 1969 or so. Do you think um because you know we and we talked about this <clears throat> by the way, this is Mike Foley, who is the author of a lot of stuff, including Citizen Cash, the political life of Johnny Cash. And you should um listen to our interview with him and go out and buy the book. But um, <clears throat> and we've talked about this country. You know, especially like later in the 60s, is identified with like Ogie from Muskogee and the fighting side of me. And we love Nixon. And, you know, it's kind of the, the stereotype we have today. Um, but obviously, Dylan and Cash didn't fit that at all. And I mean, was that kind of just recording with Cash and doing Nashville Skyline? Was that in and of itself kind of a, a political act? Yeah, I mean, he caught a lot of flack for it. You know, he was like, he was either like, you know, called a poser, like he was trying to sort of, as if he was, you know, trying to, I don't know, you know, ma manufacture a, a larger audience by like claiming country fans as, a, as his audience. I don't see how anybody would think that was a big winning strategy at the time necessarily for somebody like Dylan, who was already well established. But yeah, I think, you know, in, in aligning himself with cash and especially on that first television show and it's and a, a big network television appearance for dylan a rare thing at the time you know and he performed two songs um with cash so it was a pretty big deal you know it was a big deal for in terms of like television history um but it was also a big deal musically and certainly for him and trying to establish himself as having taken this this new direction with Nashville Skyline. Scott, I know you're also a big Johnny Cash fan. I remember when we met, you were listening to a lot of that. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, Scott's, yeah. I'm never I've never listened to country and I still like I'll listen to the older stuff now, but that's mostly because of like the stuff I would hear you and Moody and these guys playing them. But just the base of the, the classics, Merle Haggard and Waylon Jennings and Johnny Cash and stuff like that. So I, I mean I'm I'm like this may be too much of a tangent. I've I'm always been super intrigued about the, with the like sort of progressive country music. We actually did a show on this last year with a, a scholar from Middle Tennessee State and like, you know, radical country, progressive country. And I, I, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm, it, it's, it's an interesting thing to me that like Dylan takes, kind of goes into this, like, at least with Nashville Skyline, this like country music sort of phase. And it's, and it's this point where in the United States, like it's where like Nixon's out going on the Grand Ole Opry. And then we also have this sort of the outlaw country, like I think Waylon Jennings and Merle Haggard and folks like that, but they're also have this sort of like political edge. And sometimes it's kind of reactionary and sometimes it's kind of radical. And it's interesting how those two sometimes like bump up against each other. But it's, yeah. and, and, and then Dylan sort of also kind of kind of moves into that at least briefly i, I feel like a lot of the stuff from the 70s very feels very like kind of like country-esque yeah i mean it's part and it, and that's helped along by dylan you know and and the birds you know and grand parsons and you know the beginning of kind of country sweetheart rock, of the radio. you know exactly and the i mean it's interesting about like as you say at that moment in country music because there's plenty of people you know plenty of artists in country music who are not saying anything about segregation you know there's some who align themselves quite clearly with segregation and segregationist politicians who go out campaigning for them you know and then there's others who are writing you know and and had always been this tradition especially a kind of class-based uh you know analysis that shows up in the music but you know even loretta lynn pretty early on is writing these you know she would never cop to this and she's denied it before, you know, about her music being proto-feminist or something. But the song that she wrote about the pill, mm -hmm. you know, um, 
is we I think nobody disagrees on it is is a basically a feminist song right and so it is much more complex and nuanced you know and like on the war you know country radio listeners were mostly you know white working class and so they were losing their sons you know to the war maybe not in as disproportionate numbers as African Americans but um, as working class people you know, they weren't getting the deferments that middle class and other kids were getting. Um, so there's a lot of songs about the war coming out of country music that are pretty anti-war, really, you know, or they're at least like pro-GI and pro-drafty, you know, and uh, maybe we should end this thing the way Cash said repeatedly because of the waste of life, you know. Well, I want to talk about that. But, um, by the way, you're listening to the Green and Red podcast. Uh, but, you know, just kind of to kind of finalized that that part about um when we talked about kind of race and civil rights there are two songs i think we we you mentioned them which i think are lesser known one is for sure um dylan wrote a song about george jackson so black panther was murdered in prison and then reuben hurricane carter who was a boxer who was more likely than not set up on a murder in new jersey turned into a film by was a norman jewison directed or yeah yeah, right? i think yeah. so and um, I think those are really like George Jackson. I didn't hear for years. I didn't even know he wrote one for years. Same with Emmett Till. I didn't know about the Emmett Till song for, for a long time either. Uh, Hurricane, in addition to writing about it, he performed in Madison Square Garden. He and Muhammad Ali did kind of, you know, uh, political work on, on behalf of, of Hurricane Carter. So, again, I think the idea that, that, that he doesn't care about politics just doesn't doesn't hold water when it comes to that. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and I think George like. Carroll. No, I was saying writing about a Black Panther killed in prison is pretty political, you know, music. So exactly. And he, and he calls him a man I loved, I loved you know, yeah. in the in the first line or something like that. Right? right. Like, I think it's a clear, you know, it's a kind of, you know, spontaneous reaction to this horrific event of of Jackson's murder in prison. And, you know, in the same way that Neil Young sat down and wrote Ohio, you know, in 20 minutes after hearing the news, you know, and I th- unfortunately, I think. I could be wrong, but I think George Jackson, that song never made it onto a deal on LP. It was only released so single. Right. So. And, uh, and it's over the years, it's gotten kind of, it's criticized as being not very good compared to some of his other songs on race. And I'm not sure I agree with that. Cause I think, I think if you go back and listen to George Jackson and then listen to hurricane, like one's almost kind of like a rough draft for what he later does better in hurricane, you know, in telling this story about what happened. And it, it's, it, it's, but it also follows the similar model from Hattie Carroll because he's kind of reporting on events that aren't as well known to the American public. The murder of George Jackson is pretty well known, but you know, here he is like putting his own stamp on it. Uh, I think, as you say, that's a pretty big deal, you know, at a time when J. Edgar Hoover is calling the Black Panthers, you know, the single greatest threat to national security. You know, one, one thing I'm curious about is that there's this sort of civil rights phase. And then there's almost like this, he has this sort of rejection of movements. You know, like a little bit later is the George Jackson song, the hit in Hurricane and all of that stuff. And I'm, I'm just kind of curious what y'all would like, why is that? Why did he sort of reject it? But then he went and did these songs that were very clearly like embraced black power figures in a way. I mean, I, don't, I can only I can only like speculate, but I think, you know, he had his motorcycle accident and then he, you know, he did all that stuff with the band, you know, where the music from Big Pink and the basement tapes and all that stuff is like the old weird America that Creel Marcus talks about, you know, and he seemed to really take a deep dive into all of that stuff, which 
I, I don't think necessarily suggest that he, he had turned explicitly away from politics, but that he was just on his jag doing something else, you know, and then when a political event that spoke to him occurred, uh, he still wrote about it the way that he, he had before, you know, um, maybe just not with the same frequency. And because he's so fantastically prolific, you know, he didn't maintain the same like kind of proportion of political songs that he had in the early part of his career. And then he's, you know, he's openly denying it anytime anybody asks him about it or, you know, demurring. I think there's a weariness too. I think of the, like the scene in, um, <laughs> oh my God, I'm, I'm losing it here. Uh, Easy Rider, you know, where, um, uh, I forget which one, if it was Hopper Fo uh, or, um, or uh, Fonda was Foley, I was going to say, uh, you know, looks at me, so we blew it, man, we blew it. And I think I've talked to a lot of people, you know, who were around at that time who just were fatigued because the, the, the anxiety, the stress, the, you know, the murders, the pain, the war, and they were kind of trying to just get away from all that. They, you know, and I often thought that Dylan, when he makes these pronouncements about, you know, he doesn't care about movements and he doesn't care, was kind of in that same kind of ball ballpark, you know, that I'm just, it's just, you know, I mean, I feel that way today, really. I think all sure. three of us, you know, we all have both academic and, you know, kind of activist, you know, parts to our lives. And it's, you know, there are times when I just run away from it. You don't want to deal with it anymore. The other thing about like the George Jackson, the, you know, he he was he just like, we forget about what a beautiful poet and lyricist he was, but he has that great like riff in there. What is it? Life is a big prison yard. Some of us are prisoners and some of us are guards. Right. And just like underneath it all, the way he got into side, inside people's souls was, was just like stunning and, and amazing. I mean, I just remember that when he, he did that interview with Ed Bradley on 60 yeah. Minutes some years ago, uh, Ed Bradley specifically asked him about Only a Pawn. And, uh, and he, Dylan said, yeah, right. Like, so of course this was about like a specific event, you know, the murder of Medgar Evers. But he said, he claimed that he was more interested in kind of like the alliteration and the the poetry and that he wasn't even sure like how these words like came together you know um which he's often said like i'm i, I can't explain like how this stuff was just coming out of me at times you know and i i think it's important to acknowledge that and to and to say for the artists of course that's like a valid perspective but that doesn't mean necessarily that the, the political import can be denied. Um, and we, of course, as the audience, as, you know, dating back to Stuart Hall, everybody knows this, that, you know, how we, you know, decode the message, you know, is, is up to us, you know? So even if the artist, even if Bruce Springsteen writes Born in the USA about Vietnam veterans, and, you know, millions of people take it to be like a patriotic anthem, which is exactly what it is not, you know, that's the way it goes, you know? So the, the artist's perspective at some point is, you know, is only one perspective. Yeah. This is uh, the green and red birthday bash for Bob Dylan. We're talking with Mike Foley. Scott, you were going to say- I was just thinking about how all the Republican politicians tried to co-op born in Did, the USA. Didn't Lee, Iacocca, the didn't Lee Iacocca offer him like $5 million to, to do a commercial on that? You were mentioning the Ed Bradley interview. That's where I think it, he asked Dylan about um, the opening line. To, I think it's, is it all, it's all right, mom, I'm only bleeding. And that's where Dylan says, I just got lightning in a bottle. Uh, it's also funny what you also reminded me of a, a story that John Baeza told is, you know, when the ships come in, which has, you know, which I thought was just this, this amazing protest song, right? We'll raise our hands. We'll meet all your demands. We'll shout from the bow your days. And she said it was because he got bad service from a waiter. You know, <laughs> Hear that build the big guns 
Hear that bell that death pains Hear that bell all the bombs You are listening to the Silky Smooth Sounds of the Green and Red Podcast. And as always, we thank you for listening to us. Uh, We really appreciate it. And then, as always, uh, we would like to ask you to subscribe uh, to us on whatever format you listen to, whether it be on podcast or on our YouTube channel. Um, You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We are on Linktree slash Green and Red Podcast. And we now also have postcards. And if you have a coffee house or a library or a bookstore or someplace like that in your area, that might be uh, a great spot to put some of these. Just ask us and we will send them to you free of charge to spread the word about the Green and Red Podcast. And you can email us at greenredpodcast at gmail to get uh, a, a packet of your, of your postcards. Uh, and then if you really like us, you can... Uh, donate and you know we we are very happy to get the donation and have the small base of small donors so we have uh and so you can either become a patron at patreon.com backslash green red podcast or you can make a one-time donation at green and red podcast.org and just hit that support button it's also on the postcards uh and so uh you know thanks for listening and enjoy the show It hide behind desks I just don't want you to know I can see through your masks You that never done nothing But build to destroy I think, you know, Dylan, clearly, I think if there's a political legacy, that's probably the strongest part of it. But there's also, as you said, this this idea of kind of war and peace and human extinction. And, you know, I, I, I'm not going to pimp it again because I always do on the show, but my first book is titled Masters of War. And I thought it just fit perfectly, you know, along with with, you know, kind of what I was writing about. But that song really, again, the first time I heard it, and I think you mentioned with God on our side. Uh, right. Really, you know, I mean, he didn't overtly talk about that, but I think with God, I mean, both of those actually are probably the most overtly political masters of war, especially right at the end. He's like, right. I hope you die, you know, yeah. Yeah. And I'll stand on your grave and, you know, all that kind of stuff. I mean, um, and I know, Mike, you've talked to a lot of Vietnam vets and Vietnam anti-war activists in the course of your work as well. And did, did they ever talk about that? Because I've actually had vets talk to me about those two songs in particular. Yeah, I think they come up a lot in conversation. I mean, I think, and in the literature on the war and on music in the war, they obviously, you know, uh, have to be discussed, you know. And and in fact, the two of them run counter to the whole argument I was making earlier about how these political artists are most effective when they're not ramming things down your throat. But in fact, in those two songs, he pretty much is ramming things down your throat, right? He's hitting you pretty hard with what he thinks of the masters of war, you know, Um and uh and this this hypocrisy that you know we can do whatever we want because we have god on our side and i mean that's you know people in the anti-war movement couldn't have been happier obviously to have somebody who could write so powerfully uh and articulate you know the essence of the entire movement and of course this is before you know three million vietnamese are killed like he writes these songs well in advance of the carnage uh unleashed by the united states on vietnam um so, you know, that makes it to me only more, um, I don't know, awe-inspiring. Yeah. Why be humble? So there we go. <laughs> <laughs> right. Very good. You know, yeah, and, I mean, there were, oh, well, go ahead, Scott. Well, uh, 
finish up this, I have a, a thing about another Andy Warhol song. Well, no, I was just going to say there, there are, no, that's a good segue. There are a lot of people who are doing overt like anti-war music. I think like Eve of Dest- Destruction, where uh, recently we had a Lemmy and what was it? The Philadelphia Orchestra covering Eve of Destruction, which was really incredible. Nice. I mean, Johnny Cash is talking, uh, Vietnam blues was way more political than anything Dylan ever did on that particular topic. You right. have, uh, what was, uh, who was it? Kitty Wells did a, didn't she do a Vietnam song too? Yeah. Lots of artists did Vietnam yeah. songs. You yeah. Know? yeah. Um, Whereas Red Dylan really didn't. I mean, I, I don't right. remember even reading interviews about him talking about the war or anything. I don't know if he played it. Like Phil Oaks was at everything, right? Phil Oaks was there when the Yippies were formed. And I don't recall Dylan being like, you know, when I read about or see images or photos, Dylan at these anti-war rallies or anything like that that often. Right. It was mostly. No, I can't think of it. It was like civil rights stuff, you know, SNCC. Right. That's what it was. Right. Anyway, Scott, I'm March sorry. on Washington. March on Washington. Um, no, I was just thinking that you had said this earlier that, you know, Hard Rain's Gonna Fall, which is basically on the soundtrack of the Vietnam War, but it's actually a, a, a song around nuclear war. It, I, I believe, I, I actually, reading up on Bob Dylan this weekend, actually, he, he first sang it like a month before the Cuban Missile Crisis. Before? And, right. Yeah. Yeah, it was before. Oh, like, he did it in response to it. Oh, okay. Uh-oh. No, no, no. But, okay. but, but just like fears around the nuclear, around nuclear holocaust and everything and you know, Masters of War also kind of fits in this category, but they're like very critical of the military industrial complex. And I'm kind of, I'm kind of curious about both of your thoughts on that, uh, since you've both studied military industrial complex and Vietnam. I mean, I think you nailed it. I think the, like there's a consistency in all three of those songs and Masters of War with God on our side and Hard Rain. They're all, they're all critical of the military industrial complex. And he's, and he's out, you know, like we said, ahead of it even before, but, you know, people forget, I think, because when we study, you know, the atomic age and the arms race in the early Cold War, it's as if, you know, it wasn't still going on or something in the 1960s. But of course it was, you know, and and the and the, the tension that people felt, you know, the anxiety that Americans felt was, if anything, amplified you know, the, the arrival of the Kennedy administration. And Kennedy's the one writing writing that letter to all Americans in Life magazine about how they ought to be preparing for, you know, the nuclear attack and building bomb shelters and stuff, you know. It wasn't a so, secret dove, just for the record, folks. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Don't so, let all I hope Oliver Oliver Stone, if you're listening, come on, man. Come on, on. Hundred dollars. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because I think the problem, you know. It's the, this is a problem, of course, you know, that anybody who's been opposed to, to nuclear war and to the proliferation of nuclear weapons, um, and especially, you know, now, because now it's like, well, I guess a, a little bit in the last few months, it's come back as an issue, but we've gone like decades without people really talking about it as a public policy issue, even though you've got all these countries that have like obscene amounts of nuclear power, nuclear weapon power, right? Um but I think, you know, because like in our national memory, it's easy to think about Bert the Turtle and Duck and Cover and all these things as being quaint things from the 40s and 50s when McCarthyism was happening and the Rosenbergs were executed, right? But in the early 60s, as this generation is just, you know, reaching adulthood and is starting to write songs about it, like it makes sense that Bob Dylan would write songs like this, you know? And then Kennedy only proves it necessary that he wrote songs like this in the ensuing weeks you know so that's funny like the first time i ever heard that i 
in my mind, it was like, oh, he wrote that as a response. And like for forever since then, that's kind of been in my mind what, what happened. You know, you talked about Cash having the politics of empathy. I think with Dylan, it's, I wouldn't call it empathy, but there's something kind of like humanistic about what he's doing. Like everything is about like at the end of the day, just people being treated with respect and being treated well, you know, and, and obviously racial segregation and apartheid in the South don't do that. And this militarism doesn't do that. And I think at the end of the day, it's more kind of personal in, in that regard with, with him. He also could be playful, like uh, talking World War Three blues. I mean, that's a part of him. Like guys just, he's just brilliant in so many ways, but you know, he, he's, you know, uh, even like, subterranean home homemade uh blues right uh you know uh 20 years of school and they put you on the day shift i mean there's always something inside of that even in the humor kind of throwaways there's something that has much deeper meaning i think in that i I, i've just i um these aren't the the sort of like over political songs but i i was pretty intrigued with songs like uh it's all right ma i'm i'm only leading and then maggie's farm which are these sort of like kind of class class analysis class critiques and like rage like in uh it's all right mom only bleeding he actually you know he talks about he says money doesn't talk it swears it's he's trying to get in people's consciousness about like hypocrisy and greed i and i really wanted to read this quote on the on the show so i'm gonna get to do it if my thought dreams could be seen they'd put my head in a guillotine <laughs> and and like, and then also with Maggie's farm, it's like I try my best to be who I am, but everybody wants you to be just like them. Where he's like complaining about working, the, working the day shift or whatever, way less overt than like some of the civil rights stuff or the or the military industrial complex stuff, but just this more like getting to your consciousness about how the order of things is just fucked up. Speaking of politics, there is another kind of overtone talking John Birch paranoid blues, which. Uh, what was in 1963 it was going to be his first appearance on the Ed Sullivan show, which is mean you made it. He was going to play that Ed Sullivan wouldn't let him. So he walked, he walked away. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Dylan could, could be political. He could be subtle or he could be overt. Yep. I think girl from the North country is just like that. It's so beautiful, but that's really, you know, to me about like this and the, and the, when he and cash do it together, it's just stunning. They have beautiful voices, which you would never think, but when you hear that, it's just so melodic and beautiful. Um, he covered Ballad of Ira Hayes. And in fact, in um, what's the documentary score says he did about the Rolling Thunder review tour. Um, he shows he goes to a reservation. It's Peter Lafar's song. He didn't write it, but right. and, and uh, but he performed it. And in fact, don't they give him, don't the, the Native Americans give Dylan some kind of memento or something like that, I believe. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, I think, you know, the thing is, is he's, I don't know. I He's clearly has, he has like, he's very, he was always very clearly attuned, you know, to questions of class. And I think, you know, maybe that's why Woody Guthrie appealed to him so much from the start too, you know, and he's not so far removed, you know, from the depression himself. And, you know, and that's easy for people to forget too, when we're talking about Dylan being as old as he is now, but these were, these were people who were, you know, born almost you know, still in the depression and certainly, you know, are being raised by families who survived the depression and um, their class, it's impossible not to have a kind of class consciousness if you've had that kind of experience in middle America, you know, and, uh, and I think, you know, that's part of, that's part of his legacy in those songs and that subtlety that, that you're talking about is really crucial. He probably would never say that any of that was political, you know, that he was just kind of commenting on the ways of the world. But, you know, it's really the ways of uh, capitalism. And, 
you know, that's not also, the great line from Bout of it. Then man, there's something happening here, but you don't know what it is. Do you? Yeah. It's kind of interesting. Well, now yeah. the big one, which, you know, we can answer in 140 characters or less. What, what's, what's the meaning? I mean, what, what do you think? I mean, you know, it's easy to talk about what his legacy is, what his meaning is. So we might as well do it too. We're, we're talking heads with our hot takes, right? <laughs> the Scott, you want to, what, what do you think? Like, uh, and let me be more specific with you because one of the things you've done for your whole life is get together, especially with younger people and try to organize them and, and get them to become involved in direct action. Both of you have done that a lot, in fact. And I know we've talked before about music and culture being a big part of that. How does Bob Dylan music affect it? Do younger people listen to him? Um, I suspect, I mean, y'all interact more with students on a, on a, in a bigger scale, but like most of the younger folks I work with, work with probably have heard of Bob Dylan, but they're not familiar with him. I would also say that there's probably younger generations who don't even know who he is. Um, hmm. I do, I do think that the, I mean, maybe I'm wrong or that's something my parents or my grandparents, but, but I do feel like the kind of like something I said at the beginning, I, I feel like the sort of like pop culture paired with activism is actually a, a sort of defining thing that he did for the, for over the last 50 or 60 years. And I think that's actually pretty important. I think when we, I think when commentators like talking heads on podcasts or wherever pundits, you know, when they think about like first people who paired activism politics with with pop culture and, and folk music whatever they automatically go to bob dylan i think i think that's actually a, a fairly significant contribution that he's made i think it's his you know all of his vast stores of music which he's created has been really important but i think some of it when it ties together i think that's one of the more important things about dylan mike in addition to that um you spent what a decade and a half now in, in europe what's what's dylan's kind of global meaning well, this is going to disappoint you because <laughs> I think, uh, you know, among my students here, especially in France, I would say it varies by country because um, I've lived in England, the Netherlands and France. And in England, I'm sure his relevance is greater, you know, because of the English language and because he influenced so much of British um, popular music as well in the 60s and 70s. Um, but and beyond. But, uh, you know, in France, it's really strange because there's what dominates is techno music, you know, electronic dance music is the, the dominant form of music. Um, and although some major American artists can come here and tour and can still fill, you know, a, a big concert hall or something, they don't tour too widely because there, you know, there just isn't a massive audience for it, you know. But I think, you know, like Scott says, and as Scott mentioned at the beginning about the internet, you know, the one thing that's changed and it's important, I think, is that artists now with social media are more likely to express their political views. Like, like back when Dylan was doing it or Cash was doing it in kind of subtle, empathetic ways, you know, you were kind of hard pressed to, to list off a long list of artists who were willing to be politically engaged, you know, because they were afraid that it somehow might hurt their you know, sales or something. Um, whereas now, you know, people are, are kind of younger artists are defined in part by how they present themselves on social media. And many of them are, you know, don't miss a, a beat in responding to the latest outrage, whatever they think it is, you know, um, and, and, and their politics is part of their persona and part of their artistry, you know? Um, and I guess, you know, that, it's hard to imagine that ever happening 
if there weren't artists who came along in the 60s in an earlier polarized time um, who were prepared to to do that, if only on vinyl, you know? Yeah, I think punk and hip hop, clearly, you know, because that's, you know, about a decade later and that stuff. I mean, that's kind of what turned me on, you know, it's just a kind of overt kind of anger and politics. I still listen to The Clash and, you know, Public Enemy, you know, all the right. time. Right. I don't have anything of great consequence to say about Bob Dylan, you know, who, I mean, more, I suspect more has been written about him than any musician ever, maybe even like Mozart or somebody like that. Uh, um, you know, it clearly has transcendent meaning. There's a small number of people when he got three, Paul Robeson, you know, uh, Dylan, I think Bruce Springsteen is kind of the heir to that. And in, in more contemporary times, people like Cash, who have kind of moved beyond just the music world and to kind of, and have had an impact, uh, you know, I mean, I'm right outside Youngstown, Ohio now. So Springsteen song has great meaning around here because it talks about kind of just, and it's kind of like Dylan in the sense it, it treats people here as humans who are like suffering, you know, it's yeah. not, just, you know, cause it's a different world here. You know, uh, I, you know, you could be very angry. There's Trump signs and all kinds of, what do you call it? Let's go Brandon shit and stuff like that all over the place here. Um, but there's a humanity too of people who are suffering, you know, there's right. you know, opioid crises and so i think springsteen you know is kind of channeling bob dylan in a lot of the stuff he does and i've seen interviews with everybody you know elvis costello jackson brown Joni mitchell you, you name it who talked about how important dylan was to them so he's 81 he's still going yeah. pretty strong he uh, put out an album last year rough and rowdy ways which personally has i think the worst song he's ever done uh, <laughs> about the cat that 17 minutes on the kennedy assassination which right. is right neighborhood bully which which is pretty bad too but otherwise there's some great stuff on it i mean you know I, the thing about dylan is you take a song like um to to make you feel my love which uh, was a big hit for i forget who and um i remember the first time i heard that it's like that's a dylan song right i mean that's that's just a dylan song right it's just a dylan yeah. song it's amazing it's it's just i mean dylan writes just that's a bob dylan song for anybody else that's the most amazing thing you'd ever come up with so Right. He's won a Nobel Prize. He's won a Pulitzer Prize. He's, you know, sold a ton of albums. He's, I've talked to a ton of people who, especially like I've talked, I remember years ago talking to a student who said that she would have never made it through her teenage years without Bob Dylan. She was just like a bad family situation, really depressed. And she discovered Dylan. You know, I've turned a lot of students on through, through class and in, in class by playing Dylan music. So if anybody, you know, if any celebrity or pop culture icon or anybody like that, has made a difference. I think you can make a case. It's it's been him, uh, Mike. Um, any you know, like it's always great to talk to you, Citizen Cash. Uh, any last thoughts or anything you want to say? Uh, I no, I think you summed it up really well. I mean, I think it's it's a it's a case of you know it being impossible to overstate the importance and influence um, of an artist's legacy. You know. Um, and I think, you know, it is important to point out, as you just did, that he's still going and that he's still writing new songs and that that, you know, I read an interview with Pete Townsend probably 15 or 20 years ago, and Pete Townsend was complaining to the journalist that he basically just can't write songs like he used to be able to write when he was in his 20s. You know, it was like he had this gift at the time and he hasn't been able to maintain it like he writes stuff he still writes but none of it has the kind of resonance that he did when he was a young man and uh you know that's not the case with dylan you know it's and it's rare it's like and i think it's also not the case with springsteen and you know some others you know but 
uh, it's pretty it's pretty unusual, right, to have an artist who just continues to make music that's still uh, important and still, you know, people pay attention when it comes out, right? You know, and, and and they don't have to because now the media landscape is so overflowing with other material that it could be ignored, and he's he's impossible to ignore. And Scott, you're going to see him in a couple of weeks. Uh, I am. Unfortunately, uh, the uh, the uh, airline flights are so freaking expensive. I'm going to have to pass. Unfortunately, uh, where is that that you're going to see him, Scott? In Oakland, at the in Oakland Fox Theater. Nice, right? That's yeah. a good place. Yeah. Yeah. Um, last thoughts and take us out, Scott. Just the uh, just the last thoughts is uh, it's been exciting to talk about this. It's actually always good to talk about the influence of pop culture and musicians on, on political world. And so I definitely want to encourage all of our audience. If you know, if you're not familiar with Bob Dylan to get more familiar with Bob Dylan, you know, this is all, this is all like just different levels of like political activism and resistance and, you know, whether it happened 60 years ago or whether it's happening today, just like, I think it's, I think it's a important piece of what we can do to like, try and I think change at this point is is a little bit tricky that I see, but I definitely think and you know at least we're going down fighting and I think music can be a big part of that. Um, folks folks, you've been listening to uh, Mike Foley. We've been talking about Bob Dylan on the occasion of his 81st birthday uh, today. Uh, and so wish Bob Dylan a happy birthday. You've been listening to the Green and Red podcast. Check us out on Facebook. Twitter and Instagram. If you're watching this on YouTube, hit the subscribe button. And then if you want to make a donation, go to greenredpodcast.org and hit that support button or become a patron at patreon.com backslash greenredpodcast for $3. You can become $3 a month. You can become a comrade. That's less than the cost of a beer. That's like half of a beer or in, in the Bay Area, it's like a quarter of a beer. So, you know, uh, please become a patron and we'll talk to you all again soon. Everybody uh, take care out there. Gonna work for Maggie's brother no more. No, I ain't gonna.